0: I mean, it's causing this instability to an extent, but that also means that it's embroiled in this increasingly dangerous situation, which has made it more concerned about threats to its own security.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On Tuesday, January 16th, Iran launched airstrikes in Pakistan, targeting a terrorist group it claimed carried out attacks in Iran. Two days later, Pakistan responded with its own strikes in Iranian territory, targeting a separatist group that carried out attacks against Pakistan. These attacks were notable for both their scale, these were major missile and drone strikes, and for the fact that Iran and Pakistan otherwise have normal, stable, and even cordial diplomatic relations. These are not hostile neighbors, Yet, in the course of one week, they conducted military strike on each other's territory. And of course, these hostilities come amid escalating instability throughout the broader Middle East. My guest today, Michael Kugelman, is director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center and a frequent Global Dispatches guest. We kick off discussing Pakistani-Iranian relations and why this episode is such a departure from normal. Michael Kugelman explains how this flare-up is influenced by the fraught situation in the Middle East and offers some insights into how this crisis may evolve in the coming days and weeks. We recorded our conversation on Friday, January 19th, so obviously this is very timely. Uh, And this conversation will give you really helpful context for understanding this crisis between Pakistan and Iran. So just a couple of quick notes before we start. First, we have gotten a number of new subscribers over the last few weeks. Welcome, please visit globaldispatches.org to access our entire archive of episodes. We've been putting out this show two episodes a week every week for the last 11 years. So there is a rich and robust archive of past content that is still quite relevant. And if you are a regular listener, Thanks for listening. And as always, feel free to reach out to me via the contact button at globaldispatches.org if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And I always appreciate listeners who take the leap to become paid subscribers, either via the newsletter at globaldispatches.org or directly in the Apple podcast app. Thank you. It really helps. Now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center. So before we get into the events of the last few days, can I have you set some important context for listeners about Iran-Pakistan relations? I mean, these are neighbors with normal, if not cordial, diplomatic relations, yet something seems to have gone rather haywire. So what should listeners know about Iran-Pakistan relations prior to this flare-up? It uh, has
0: never been a hostile partnership. It might not be a... uh incredibly close partnership. But uh, for the most part over the years, it's been a workable, cordial relationship. There are a number of cultural and historical ties that bind Pakistan and Iran together. They've also had uh, significant levels of trade cooperation over the years. And there have been a number of policy convergences. One in particular that stands out is that Iran has actually been one of a relatively small number of countries, including in the Muslim world, that have publicly taken Pakistan's side on the Kashmir dispute that Pakistan has with India. And that's something that Pakistan has really appreciated. And, you know, it's interesting, you think about Pakistan's unstable borders and its tensions with neighbors. You know, we always think about its troubled relationship with India. We think about tensions that it's had with Afghanistan. We don't think as much about its relations with Iran. But I will say this, that there is some broader context here that I think is useful in, in understanding what took place between Pakistan and Iran in this crisis. There is a long-standing tension point in Pakistan-Iran relations, and that is the issue of cross-border terrorism. For a long time, Pakistan and Iran have accused each other of sheltering terrorists that stage attacks on the other side, and much of those tensions revolve around the very groups that were targeted in the strikes during this crisis, Jaish-e- based in Pakistan, and several different Baluch separatist groups based in Iran. So this tension point did not prevent the relationship from experiencing you know, fair amount of friendliness, as I noted before, but it's always been lingering. But I would argue that if you want to look at the big issues that had really prevented the Iran-Pakistan relationship from really expanding, it would have to be geopolitical issues, one being Pakistan's longstanding partnership with Saudi Arabia which of course is a traditional rival of Iran, though I would also note that when we had that surprise deal brokered by Beijing between Saudi Arabia and Iran some months ago, it was a reconciliation deal. Many observers, including myself, thought that that would heighten Pakistan's opportunities to engage more with Iran, because it, not having to worry as much about upsetting Saudi Arabia, given that Saudi Arabia was getting along better with Iran, the idea is that that would have given Pakistan more diplomatic space, to explore more cooperation with iran but of course all of that has now come into question given how tense relations are after this crisis
1: so what do we need to know about these two groups that the countries accuse of being harbored in the other country josh al idol and the blukistan separatist groups
0: right so josh al is a key player it's been around for uh well more than a decade. And this is a group that Iran has long considered to be a threat. This is a group that has carried out attacks in Iran before and including a recent one just a few weeks ago last month. Just so
1: listeners aren't confused, they are not accused. This is a different group than carried out that really big terrorist attack at the funeral of Solomon al-Qasimi in Karman earlier this month. That was ISIS-K, ISIS offshoot, not this group.
0: And that's actually an an interesting point which you were going to know because iran is actually saying that there is a connection there oh but just very briefly getting back to jaish al-adl it staged attacks in iran in the past from its bases in pakistan and iran has pressured pakistan to deal with this threat on its soil but it really hasn't acted against the group in ways that iran would have liked so you know, there's a history here. Iran has always been concerned about this group and it's felt that Pakistan didn't do enough about it. Now, on the other side of the border, in what's called Sistan and Baluchistan in Iran, you have had a history of several different groups. The main one is called the Baluchistan Liberation Army, which was one of the groups targeted by Pakistan in its strike the other day. You know, this is a group and there are several others that are very different ideologically from Jai al It's Essentially, we're talking about ethnic separatism here. It's not Islamist, it's not tied to religious extremism. You have long had an insurgency in Balochistan. Uh, in recent decades, it's been fairly low grade, but you have had militants that have been fighting for a separate state, a separate country in Baluchistan. They've long opposed violently the fact that they're a part of Pakistan. They believe that Pakistan has exploited precious local resources, including water supplies, through heavy development projects, including infrastructure projects. And this anger of these Baloch militants at Pakistan has increased in recent years as Chinese investment has come into Pakistan. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is the Pakistan component of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's involved a lot of development infrastructure projects in Balochistan that these Baloch militants feel are making life very difficult for uh, local Baluch communities. Anyway, the BLA has staged a number of attacks in Pakistan, and it does have a presence in Pakistan, but it also has had a presence in Iran, and also, interestingly enough, in Afghanistan as well. But getting to your point about Jaish al-Adil, I think it gets very confusing, all these different groups. So, yes, this terrible attack in Iran on January 3rd, I believe, which killed about 100 people, one of the deadliest attacks in Iran in years, Islamic State Khorasan claimed it. Islamic State Khorasan is the Afghanistan-based branch of the Islamic State terror group. Separate group from Jaish al-Adil. They're both Sunni extremist groups, so maybe they have some ideological convergences, but they're different groups. However, there's been some interesting reportage that came out in the days after the crisis, indicating that Iran's government actually presented evidence to Pakistan's government, indicating, according to Iran, that Jaish al-Adil, the group that Iran targeted in Balochistan, actually was involved to some degree in that earlier attack in Iran earlier in January. Ah. And this is why, or one of the reasons why Iran decided to strike, because as this reportage lays out, and Reuters was one of the first to break this news, Iran had basically told Pakistan, well, you need to do something about this group, and apparently Pakistan did not. So Ah. uh, that is important context here.
1: So can you walk listeners through what specifically triggered these attacks and what these attacks between Pakistan and Iran actually entailed? What happened?
0: So, I mean, the context is indeed critical. And I think that there's local context is important, but also broader regional context. So what I mean by that local context is what we've already discussed, that Iran appears to believe that the group that it targeted in Pakistan had been involved in some way in this horrific terrorist attack in Iran on January 3rd. So that's important context. But also, we need to look at the broader, very complex, troubling dynamics playing out in the Middle East over the last few months, and particularly since the Israel-Hamas war began in October. So it's hard to make sense of everything playing out in the region. But for me and for other analysts, one of the things that stands out is that there's a common denominator of many of the violent actors non-state actors that are staging provocations and staging attacks and rapidly leading to destabilization in the region they are sponsored by iran Hamas, hezbollah the houthis those are the most prominent ones this has made Iran more vulnerable. It has made it increasingly concerned about threats to its security interests because it's basically, I mean, it's causing this instability to an extent, but that also means that it's embroiled in this increasingly dangerous situation, which has made it more concerned about threats to its own security. And of course, the January 3rd attack in Iran stands out in that regard. So Iran had been using proxies to hit out against Israel and its allies but what we've seen it do in the days leading up to this crisis with Pakistan is that it has actually started carrying out direct strikes on its own against what it believes or what it projects as anti-Iran threats. So, you know, let's not forget that right before it carried out its attack in Pakistan,
1: it carried out similar attacks in Iraq and also in Syria. And just to emphasize y- your point, because it's, it's crucially important, these were not attacks carried out via proxies. These were Iran state attacks in foreign territory which is something that is somewhat unusual and escalatory in certain regard yeah absolutely indeed i mean these were iranian security
0: forces directly carrying out these attacks in iraq and syria and also in pakistan so you know cutting to the chase here you know essentially iran has been feeling increasingly vulnerable it's been feeling really serious concerns about its security and it's decided to basically hit out at uh, what it believes to be its biggest security threats. And one of those includes Jaish al-Adil, which of course is right next door. As I had said before, it's a group that's long been a, a concern for Iran, and according to Iran, was involved in this horrific attack early in January. So, you know, if we accept the fact that one major reason why this crisis was provoked was that Iran wanted to go after these groups that it considers threats, it makes sense that Jaish e adil will be one of those just because there's a long history of, of Iranian concern about this group based in Pakistan that it believes Pakistan has not done enough to deal with.
1: So Iran, correct me if I'm wrong, carried out a ballistic missile attack on what it purported to be Jaish al-Adil targets inside Pakistan. What did those attacks entail? And what was the response from Pakistan? Yes,
0: yeah, so your question gets to a critical point that the attack that Iran carried out or the operation it carried out was not unprecedented. You know, as I had said, there's long been tensions between Iran and Pakistan about cross-border terrorism risks. So there have been cases in the past where Iran has carried out these cross-border activities against Jaish al-Adil, but it had never done anything on the scale that it did with this attack. We're talking about missiles, also drones that were used. And also the death toll, it's unclear exactly what the exact fatality numbers were. We're not talking about huge numbers of people that died, but there were civilians that were killed, there were some children that were killed. I imagine there's a good chance that those children that were killed were children of militants. But at any rate, this was unprecedented in scale and in scope, so not in terms of it happening, but the scale of it was unprecedented. And so that I think is one reason why Pakistan decided to uh, retaliate with its own strike. So
1: let's get into those reasons. And I imagine Pakistan was to a certain degree kind of shocked by the scale of the Iranian attack in its territory. What was the discussion, the debate within Pakistan and the context for understanding how and why Pakistan decided to retaliate in the way that it did?
0: Right. So, yeah, I think that, you know, definitely shock is a word that would describe the reaction in Pakistan. Also, quite frankly, embarrassment that this happened. And going back to the shock, I think a big reason for the shock was not just because it was the scale of what happened, but also the fact that it was Iran that did it. Again, as I've emphasized, Pakistan does not see Iran as a hostile neighbor. I think it was genuinely surprised that Iran would have done something like this. So in terms of, you know, the thinking that went on as decision to retaliate, I think that, you know, first of all, the fact that it was such a, the attack was of such high scale, unprecedented scale. I think that was one big reason, a big compelling reason for for Pakistan to retaliate. But a second and perhaps even more compelling reason, rationale for it to retaliate was a need to restore deterrence as quickly as possible. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Pakistan knows the, the context that you and I were describing earlier, that Iran is, seemingly on this offensive, very dangerous campaign to directly target threats to itself. And I think that Pakistan likely feared that if it had not retaliated, and if it had not retaliated swiftly, the chances of another Iranian strike on Pakistani soil would have increased. You know, I think that's the compelling reason. There are certainly are other factors at play that, you know, are obviously, you know, this is speculation at the end of the day, but based on the broader state of play, several other factors. One, as you know, and as I think you and I have discussed on this podcast in the past, Pakistan is experiencing severe political turbulence at the moment. And one of the manifestations of that is there has been rising anger among the public against the Pakistani army, mainly because the army has been cracking down hard on Imran Khan, former prime minister, who's very popular and has a very large support base. He's been in jail since August. And so I think that the army that, quite frankly, calls the shots on decisions like, do we retaliate for this strike? the army likely concluded that it could get a bit of a political bounce, even if a momentary one, out of of retaliation on the assumption that many Pakistanis would have supported a strong, quick retaliation. And that that could then sort of push back against some of this anti-army anger that you've seen in the Pakistani public, which I should say is very unusual. The Pakistani military is very powerful. It may not be the most popular entity in the country, but uh, it's very rare for there to be such overt, large forms of public anger against the army. So I think that's another factor. Finally, anything that Pakistan does when it comes to security policy, the military, India always looms large here. And I think that another reason why Pakistan may have decided to retaliate, and especially as quickly as it did, was to do so with an Indian audience in mind. Basically to sort of signal to India that, well, look, if you were to consider doing something like this on on our soil, this is what you'd get. And it's important to remember that a few years ago in 2019, there was a pretty serious crisis between India and Pakistan. There was a Pakistan-sponsored terrorist attack in India. India then hit back with airstrikes in Pakistan. What people forget is that after that Indian counterstrike, Pakistan actually retaliated with its own limited strike it was in an unpopulated area i don't think there were any civilian casualties or anything but that was another case where pakistan hit back obviously the dynamics were different because pakistan started that crisis not india so i think that pakistan responded the way it did in part because of thinking about what india will be watching final note on this i think it's coincidental but this definitely would have been noticed in pakistan that Dr. S. Jaishankar, India's external affairs minister, he was in Iran on an official visit there the day before Iran carried out its attack in Pakistan. And you can imagine all the conspiracy theories in Pakistan yeah. about that. The timing is coincidental, but again, it sort of plays into these concerns in Pakistan about India.
1: So what was
0: Pakistan's response? Again, I mean, the full details are tough. Pakistan's official readout is very different from Iran's official readout, but it appears that it was a similar type of strike as the one in, uh, that Iran carried out in Pakistan. You know, it was an airstrike, perhaps several airstrikes, that targeted BLA uh, bases. Again, BLA is the Balochistan Liberation Army, a separatist insurgent group that has long targeted Balochistan and Pakistan. There were deaths. Pakistan said that they were all terrorists that were killed. Iran says that they were civilians, including. Uh, children and the death toll that Iran cited for the attack on its soil was larger than the death toll that Pakistan cited on for the attack on its soil. So, you know, the fact that civilians died, and again, I think that these kids that were killed were likely children of militants, I think that's significant because it makes it a bit more difficult to de-escalate. You know, had there been, you know, clean attacks that targeted terrorists, you know, you had a few bases destroyed you know, you didn't have any civilian casualties, I think it would be a bit easier to deescalate. But, you know, the attack in Pakistan, civilians were killed. As I understand it, a mosque was damaged. And then the attack in Iran, more children were killed, civilians were killed as well. So, you know, keeping that in mind, uh, I think that the crisis is on the way to deescalation, but it's sort of hard to get there so quickly given the, you know, the consequences of these attacks, particularly the human toll. And one other thing I should say is that it appears that all of those that were killed in the attack on Iran were Pakistanis. They were not Iranians, which again, strengthens my view that the children that were killed would have been kids of the militants themselves.
1: Does Iran accuse Pakistan of supporting Josh al-Adil? And likewise, does Pakistan accuse Iran of supporting the Baluchistan separatists, or is this more of a case where they're just kind of operating in relatively lawless areas, independent of any external foreign government support?
0: Yes, they both accuse each other of sheltering these groups, which you know essentially, in my view, uh, equates to support. Mm-hmm. It's not just a case of accusing the other side of not doing enough to go after this threat, It's more so of directly accusing them of sheltering them. And if you look at the statements that came out from the two governments after their respective strikes, I mean, you see that, you see that language in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's very much a part of this.
1: So, I mean, it seems from reading your analysis and from what I've read elsewhere that both sides, Iran and Pakistan are seeking off ramps. Is that like your best analysis at the moment?
0: Yeah, I, I think so, that, you know, even though I said that, you know, the nature of these strikes and the death toll, the civilian casualties will make it difficult to deescalate quickly. I do think, ironically, that the way in which these strikes were carried out creates openings for off-ramps. Uh, just because, you know, you had this Iranian strike, you had a Pakistan counterstrike. So, you know, in effect, they're even. It sort of creates openings for diplomacy to set in. Neither of these countries can afford a war both of them equally for different reasons can't afford a war or a conflict or even a more severe crisis. Pakistan, as I'd said before, is going through significant levels of political instability. Its economy is a mess. It's also experiencing a resurgence of terrorism emanating from across another border, uh, the one with Afghanistan. So it can't afford a fight. Uh, and you know, not not to mention, I think I'd sort of gotten into this before, Pakistan always has tensions with India, one of its neighbors. It's having serious tensions with Taliban-led Afghanistan, which is ironic because, as you know, the Taliban had been Pakistan's uh, asset for so many years. So it can't afford to have serious tensions with a third neighbor. In terms of Iran, you know iran is in a bit of a different spot it, like pakistan ex- it's experiencing significant internal turmoil from its uh, economic stress which is of course exacerbated by the us sanctions regime but with iran you know you have to look at the the vulnerabilities that i was mentioning before it is you know embroiled in all of this cascading instability around the middle east it's not making many new friends with its policies uh, around the region at least not you know new friends outside of the violent actors that it backs And so it can't afford to be plunged into a conflict, into a direct conflict. I think that's something that Iran very much wants to avoid. So yeah, I do think that there are incentives, especially now for the two to try to bring things back from the brink. I think that uh, there could be some potential for external mediation as well to help put the two sides on the right path to de-escalation. And
1: you think that would probably
0: come from China, right? Yeah, that's what I've been saying ever since this crisis started. It's one of the only countries that has really good relations with both Pakistan and China. Its relations with Iran uh, had not always been super good, but they're really good now, uh, two years after a a, a 25-year strategic partnership agreement was signed. What also makes China, I think, a particularly compelling mediator option is that both countries are cash-strapped and dependent on uh, China for economic support. And that gives Beijing leverage, which suggests that if it wanted to try to mediate, it would actually be successful at getting the two sides to de-escalate. I can't really think of any other country, maybe Turkey, but Turkey doesn't have the relationship with Iran that China does. But very small number of countries. This is not an area where the West, certainly not the US, could get involved, but there is a precedent as I mentioned earlier, sort of came out of nowhere. But some months ago, Beijing facilitated that monumental reconciliation deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There is that precedent for China to play this role. And of course, it's always looking for ways to expand its influence and look good, so to speak, in the Middle East, particularly amid great power competition with the U.S.
1: So it seems the potential for Chinese mediation is one future indicator you'll be looking towards. I will suggest to you how this conflict may evolve. Is there anything else that you're looking towards in the coming days or weeks?
0: Well, looking at the tone and the tenor of public messaging from both capitals, now I've been struck by the fact that in the few days after Pakistan's counterstrike, the rhetoric from both sides was much less sharp and bellicose than it had been when the crisis began. And that suggests, again, uh, a willingness on the part of both sides to try to uh, bring things back from the brink. But I'll continue to watch that. I mean, will that public messaging remain fairly conciliatory, or could it turn uh, dark again? I think another thing we have to watch out for is, you know, the issue of spoilers, right? I mean, I, I certainly would not rule out the possibility that Jai Shalato or the BLA or other groups uh, that were targeted in this crisis, that they could carry out an, uh, an attack, you know, in one of the two countries. That could, you know, clearly bring tensions back. And obviously that would not be good for either country, but that's something to watch as well. Will we see sort of stepped up militant activity in the case of these groups that are involved in this crisis.
1: Michael, as always, I really appreciate your analysis and insights. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.